What is NATO? What is the Warsaw Pact? What was life like in the Soviet Union during the Cold War? How did Putin rise to power and why does it matter? These and many more questions I'm going to answer in part two of The Last 100 Years in Russia. Welcome to Wiser World, a podcast for busy people who need a refresher on all things world. Here we explore different regions of the globe, giving you the facts and context you need to think historically about current events. I truly believe that the more we learn about the world, the more we embrace our shared humanity. I'm your host, Allie Roper. Thanks for being here. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. If you haven't listened to part one of the last 100 years in Russia, go ahead and do that now. At the end of that episode, we ended on the Cold War beginning. So this is the end of World War II. This is the United States um, believing in containment. We have arguments over the countries that have been recently released from Nazi uh, control. And what are these countries going to do? What are their political and economic systems going to be? And so in 1949, NATO was ratified, and NATO is N-A-T-O, and it stands for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Essentially, this is a military and political alliance or agreement between countries who are dedicated to the idea of democracy and keeping anti-democratic countries in check. So at the time, it was mostly the U.S., Canada, and other Western European nations, so when it was made. As it says on their website today, NATO's purpose is to guarantee the freedom and security of its members through political and military means. So when this happened in 1955, the United States and the other members of NATO made West Germany a member of NATO because what Germany was divided into East and West sides. And the West side was considered the Democratic side and the East side was controlled by the Soviet Union. So by making West Germany a member of NATO and permitting it to have a military again, this was obviously very threatening to the Soviet Union um, because obviously it has a border, right? So they responded, the Soviets responded with something called the Warsaw Pact, which was another political and military alliance or agreement. But this was between the Soviet Union and other Eastern European nations like Albania, Poland, Romania, Hungary, East Germany, Czechoslovakia, and Bulgaria. And it was set up with a unified military command under the Soviet Union. So basically the idea is you make a pact, We'll make one, too. It's like kids on a playground. Do you want to make a click? Fine. We'll make one, too. Right. And so back to the Soviet Union at the time, during its existence, the USSR was the largest country in the world. And 15 independent states that we know today were once part of the Soviet Union. So I'm going to list those for you so that you can just kind of imagine these countries were all part of the USSR. We have Armenia, Moldova, Estonia. Latvia, Lithuania, Georgia, Azerbaijan, 
Tajikistan or Tajikistan, depending on how you want to pronounce that, Kyrgyzstan or Kyrgyzstan, Belarus, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Ukraine, Kazakhstan or Kazakhstan, and Russia. All right. So what was life like in the Soviet Union at the time? Well, it really depends on who you talk to, what you read. I find it very interesting that after World War II, we have so many books written, um, especially about the Holocaust from survivors, especially those who immigrated to Western Europe or moved to other countries. But the stories of Eastern Europeans after World War II were largely not published into mainstream press because they were behind the Iron Curtain. And so by the time the Berlin Wall fell in the early 1990s, many of the survivors of World War II had already passed away. And so this is why oral histories at the in those areas, I feel, are very important. And now there are a lot more books being written about this area, and I'm really glad to see it because I think it's been underrepresented. But anyway, because communism is a system where industry is controlled by the government, generally people get their wages from the government. So therefore, government controls your standard of living to a certain extent. So it takes out a lot of economic choices. For example, in the United States or in many other countries in the 1970s, there were hundreds of options of pants and jeans to buy. But in a communist economy, the only options are the ones that are decided upon or produced by the government. So you get the picture here. Basically, what we there's just tons of information on the Soviet Union at the time, but here are some statistics for you. In 1976, only two-thirds of Soviet families had a refrigerator, and the U.S. hit two-thirds in the early 1930s. So Soviet families had to wait years to get one, and when they finally got a postcard giving notice that they could buy one, they had a fixed one-hour slot during which they could pick it up, and they lost their chance if they did not arrive in time. In the same period, uh, the USA, we're comparing USA and Soviet Union because that's what we're talking about right now, but the USA had nearly 100 million passenger cars and the USSR had half that, 5 million. So people typically had to wait four to six years for a car and often as long as 10 years. Uh, there was 30 times as much typhoid, 20 times as much measles and cancer detection rates were half as good as in the United States. Life expectancy actually fell in the Soviet Union during the 1960s and 70s. 15% of the population lived in areas with pollution 10 times normal levels. And um, by, the US, uh, by the U.S.'s poverty measure at the time, about well over half of the Soviet population were considered very poor. So not being able to afford winter hats and coats, um, those costing an entire month's wages or things like that. So from what I have read, it does appear to me that the average worker did not have a very high standard of living. And after after a communist economy system or economic system is in a relatively stable place, it can be generally predictable, even though you don't have economic freedom. So this is why, and I'll talk about this later, but some countries that change from a communist economy or a control economy to a capitalist economy or a more free economy where you can have private businesses and things like that. Some citizens actually don't like it. Um, it's it's interesting. And, and that one of the reasons why is because it a capitalist economy can be less dependable depending on the situation, right? It's very dependent on each country. But it does sound like at the time there were long lines to get food at times. Um, there was certainly very little rising to the top or working your way into success like we hear about in other nations. And elite members of the Communist Party obviously lived higher on the hog. They had the control. So obviously corruption was a thing. 
And there's a lot more that we can dig into there when we cover Russia more closely in another season. But that's basically kind of the general idea of of living under the Soviet um, rule. And again, lots of books written about this with really amazing stories that we can cover later. But back to the general history, during the next 40 years, so from the 1950s to 1990, lots of things happened. For example, the U.S. and the Soviet Union had a nuclear arms race, and they also had a space race. Who could get to space first? I'm sure you've seen movies on that, read on that. I feel like that's covered decently well. Um, Lots of countries began, lots of smaller countries or countries that were less industrialized began having revolutions during this time against colonial rule or against um, major countries or major economic countries ruling over them. And the USSR or Soviet Union and the U.S. began financially backing different causes. So essentially fighting each other through other countries' civil wars. Um, Some examples of this are China. China had a civil war, became communist. The Korean War happened. Uh, Cuba aligned itself eventually with the Soviet Union. We had the Vietnam War. Um, Russia, Russia invaded Afghanistan in 1979. Um, Lots of Middle Eastern countries were asking for aid of their own against Israel. Central America was asking for money. Basically, it was a war. Oh, also, I cannot leave out Africa. Many African nations during this time also going through very tragic civil wars. And basically, it was a war. The Cold War was kind of a war of influence and power. So which economic and political system is going to win in these other nations that are going through turmoil. And also during this time, the U.S. and the USSR are spying on each other. And the U.S. spy agency is called the CIA. And the Russian spy agency was called the NKVD for a while. And then eventually it became known as the KGB. And that's why you hear KGB often when uh, we talk about Putin, because Putin was a KGB officer. So a man named Nikita Khrushchev was the leader after Joseph Stalin. Now, so Joseph Stalin dies, and he actually, when when Nikita Khrushchev got put in, he actually made a secret speech to the governing body that condemned Stalin's dictatorial rule, so condemning him as a dictator. And shortly after that, he began to implement a series of reforms, and this is known as the Thaw. So these reforms included things like transforming Soviet foreign policy or the way it worked with other nations to a more peaceful cooperation with the West. And he destroyed the gulag system or the forced labor camps. And he released thousands of political prisoners who had been incarcerated under Stalin. So this kind of de-Stalinization continued until Khrushchev became prime minister in 1958. And despite these reforms, um, any kind of anti-communist ideas in any part of the Soviet Union during in its republics, meaning those, those countries that it took over, were strongly and violently suppressed. So as Khrushchev backed down from some of Stalin's ways, there were massive uprisings that cropped up in places like East Germany and Hungary, which kind of scared Soviet leaders, right? They kind of backed down on the Stalin stuff, but then it kind of freaked them out because now we have massive uprisings of people wanting more freedom, and that made these Soviet leaders kind of buckle down more. So anyone who preached independence for their country was arrested and could be imprisoned for 15 years or more. And in October of 1962, 
the Soviets installed Soviet nuclear missiles in Cuba. And this led to what we call the 13-day Cuban Missile Crisis. I'm sure you've heard of this. I hope you've heard of this. But basically, the idea was this, by installing nuclear missiles in Cuba, America, Americans began to, or I should say, United, the United States began to fear nuclear war because Cuba is awfully close to the U.S. And Khrushchev eventually agreed to remove the missiles um, while President John F. Kennedy agreed to not invade Cuba and to also remove U.S. missiles from Turkey. So there's a lot more that we can talk about there. But basically, that moment was the closest that the United States has been to nuclear war was that Cuban Missile Crisis that happened under Khrushchev's lead. Now, after Khrushchev, Leonid Brezhnev, I think that's how you pronounce that. I'm sure I'm botching that. But Brezhnev became the prime minister in 1964. So when he came in, most of those reforms of the thaw or the you know, de-Stalinization, they actually canceled. And Brezhnev re-centralized the government, hoping to crack down on these independence movements that continued to grow in the republics or those countries they'd taken over, particularly in Ukraine. So 1964 Ukraine is something interesting to look up if you're looking for something more. In 1968, the Warsaw, Warsaw Pact troops, so again, military alliance between Soviet Union and its uh, controlled countries, republics, they actually invaded Czechoslovakia to suppress independent movements there. So during the 1970s and 60s, Russia, or sorry, during the 1960s, Russia kind of clamps down. We have the Cuban Missile Crisis. We have just, you know, suppressing these independent movements, keeping people in check. Now, during the 1970s, here in the U.S., Nixon was president, and he adopted a more diplomatic response rather than a military action toward the USSR. He actually, in 1972, signed something called the SALT One or the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty. That basically means that the two countries limited the amount of nuclear missiles each country could have. So the USSR, by by doing so, right, by limiting the amount that they could have, that's progress. But then the USSR begins to develop larger missiles. So we can have less, but we'll make them bigger. And the U.S. begins focusing on more accurate missiles. So how can they reach a specific target, right? So still working on missiles, but limiting the amount. And then under Reagan's administration, which was pretty much the 1980s, um, the Cold War heated up a little more at first. But the 80s were generally a time when Soviet influence in Eastern Europe began to decrease. So in response to severe economic problems and growing political unrest, a new leader, Mikhail Gorbachev, he took office in 1985. Now, Gorbachev is a name to know. He still comes up. He did something that changed Russia forever. He introduced two policies that redefined Russia's relationship or the USSR's relationship to the rest of the world. The first was called Glasnost, which means political openness, very different, right, than the closeness that we saw before, and also a word called perestroika. Again, I'm probably saying that wrong. I really wish I spoke, spoke Russian right now. But that perestroika was economic reform. So basically, political openness, economic reform. He then went to summit talks with the U.S. President Ronald Reagan to end the Cold War. So in the summer of 1989, almost Every other communist state in the region 
replaced its government with a non-communist one. And Poland had elections in June of 1989, voted the communists out. And after that, Gorbachev announced that the Soviet Union would no longer interfere with the internal affairs of the Eastern European countries. By October, Hungary and Czechoslovakia followed Poland's example. And then on November 9th, the East German government opened the Berlin Wall. So in November of that year, the Berlin Wall, the most visible symbol of the decades-long Cold War, because it divided democracy from communism, essentially, it was finally destroyed. And that's obviously a huge moment in history. And the U.S. and uh, Russia had many meetings after this. In 1990, Gorbachev was elected president. It was the same year he won the Nobel Peace Prize for bringing the Cold War to a peaceful end. And by 1991, the Soviet Union itself had essentially fallen apart. And this was kind of seen, generally seen as the the end of the Cold War. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So to this day, Gorbachev is actually a controversial figure for some Russians. Some love what he did and some do not. He does not have universal positive approval in Russia. And it's an interesting, he's an interesting person to bring up, interesting topic of conversation. In June, on June 12th of 1991, Boris Yeltsin won Russia's first popular presidential election, and he urged democracy. Later that year, the Communist Party tried to stage a coup, but it was, or a takeover, basically, but it was unsuccessful. Gorbachev resigned, And with Ukraine and Belarus, so this is 1991, with Ukraine and Belarus, Russia formed what was called the Commonwealth of Independent States, um, which most former Soviet republics eventually joined. And Yeltsin begins lifting communist-imposed price controls and reforms, and in 1993, pledges more nuclear arms cuts. So basically, it's a, a... kind of a commonwealth of these states that were once the Soviet Union, but they're all independent now. Um, But they they all have less communist-imposed price controls and reforms kind of to help their economies to grow. So when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, a new democratic Russia was born, and it looked 
briefly like the U.S. and Russia might finally become allies. But Russia, keep in mind that Russia, which was before the 1917 communist revolution, it was ruled by czars, by monarchs for more than 350 years. And so Russia had no experience with democracy starting in 1991. And so there was a mayhem period, just a really challenging transition period in the 1990s when prices soared and the economy crashed and it left many Russians impoverished and quite disillusioned with the idea of democracy. And Yeltsin wins re-election in 1996, but he resigns in 1999, naming, here we go, former KGB agent Vladimir Putin as his prime minister. He was his prime minister, and he names him as the acting president. So when Putin comes to power in 1999, he promises security and prosperity And many Russians welcomed the idea of putting a new strongman in charge. So think about your birthday, okay? 1999 is when Vladimir Putin became acting president. That's a long time, right? On March 26th, 2000, Vladimir Putin is elected president because he was put in in as president when um, Yeltsin resigned. But then he's elected president, and then he is also re-elected in a landslide election in 2004. But because of term limits in Russia at the time, he had to leave office in 2008. But his close friend, um, I hope I say this right, but it's Dmitry Medvedev, was elected. And then Vladimir Putin served as his prime minister. So because they worked so closely together, most people, at least here in the U.S., kind of see Putin as put, pulling all the strings behind the scenes and influencing policy, even though Medvedev was technically the president. So he's has been in enormous state of power through that time, even those four years that he technically wasn't president. Putin was then reelected as president in 2012. Now, some background on Putin. I'm sure you've read up on him a little bit by now, possibly, but he worked as a KGB foreign intelligence officer for 16 years, rising to the rank of what would be a lieutenant colonel. And then he resigned in 1991 to begin his political career. So there are many theories for how Putin gained so much political power as a brand new president. And there's a lot of, a lot of, reports on things that he did to gain political power. But basically, Putin has consolidated power and eliminated his opposition. Uh, Some of the things that he's done is limited freedom of the press. But interestingly enough, life for many Russians has improved, mostly because of a global demand for oil, and Russia has a lot of oil. So in many cities, you know, we see a new middle class of Russians that can sip Starbucks lattes, and they can buy Gap jeans, and generally speak out. There actually is a really great article that was written in 2017 for teenagers, and it was written by Scholastic. And I want to read part of it to you because I think it does a wonderful job of kind of summarizing Putin in a more general way. So it says here, more than a few of Putin's serious critics and political rivals have been imprisoned under sketchy circumstances or even killed. A few years ago, Putin's crackdown included jailing members of an all-female punk band for singing anti-Putin songs. All the while, he's increasingly portrayed the U.S. as an enemy of renewed Russian greatness, which, again, the people wanted that because they were in the throes of early democracy and they weren't prepared for it. They'd never had it before. 
Another article talked about how Putin began his long-running disinformation campaign when he came to power in 2000, that he took over Russia's independent television television channels, and he would bring um, the leaders who owned them to heal kind of or would oust them from the country. It says, since then, he has chipped away at free expression, political dissent, and independent voices. Each new amendment to the law declares non-governmental organizations as undesirables, and each assassination of a journalist or a political leader who went too far, and each expansion of what constitutes an extremist content online, and thus is censored, brought Putin one step closer to having more and more power. In 2014, the U.S. supported a revolution in Russia's neighbor Ukraine that overthrew a government backed by Russia. So, in other words, Ukraine had a government that was pro-Russia, and the U.S. supported a revolution to end that support. Afterwards, Russia invaded Ukraine and seized the Crimean Peninsula, and the U.S. responded by imposing economic sanctions, which we're seeing now, on Russia. But things went from bad to worse when Russia sent troops and ships and warplanes to Syria in 2015. So the United States was supporting rebels in Syria, and Russia decided to support the dictator of Syria at the time. So they would attack the rebels who the U.S. was supporting, and they would bomb civilian areas in rebel territory. So they were supporting um, the opposite of what the United States was supporting. And Russian involvement eventually helped turn the tide um, for the Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad in his civil war. So all of this aggression has led many experts to conclude that Obviously, relationships between the U.S. and Russia were, even a couple of years ago, worse than they had been in decades. And in fact, some worried, even back then, just a couple of years ago, that a miscalculation on either side could spark a confrontation. So lots of quotes from even 2017, 2018, 2019. Hey, watch out for this. And since then, you probably know a lot of the news about Russia right now. But during Trump's entire administration, Russia was being investigated for tampering with the 2016 presidential election in favor of Donald Trump. Now, in 2018, Putin won another election with roughly 77, 76 percent of the vote. That's a lot. Um, But there are many people who claim that that election was not accurate or was rigged in some way or other. Either way, in 2018, he was sworn in for six more years. Now, the election process is interesting in Russia. As one article puts it, Russia has an authoritarian regime in which election results and turnout are preordained. So the idea is that they put forth the image of a democracy, of free voting, but that's not necessarily what's going on. The next election is in 2024, but in 2020, a series of amendments were passed in Russia that would essentially reset Putin's term limit clock to zero. This was a move that would allow him to run for office in 2024 and again in 2030 and potentially remain in office through 2036. And interestingly enough, it was passed, but not necessarily because the population liked it, but because it had a bunch of other amendments tacked onto it that they did like. And so everything was bundled together, which shows that the government was concerned that possibly Putin's approval ratings were not as high as they'd like. Whew! I think we are historically now at the present. So Russia is invading Ukraine. 
Putin is using the excuse of protecting Russian security. There are dozens and dozens of great articles and information on this topic, so I'm going to leave you there. This has been a lot of history. I hope it has been helpful. Again, I hope you can stop it, re-listen, think, go dive in deeper somewhere where you have more questions. But I do think that just going back and revisiting the history of this nation gives us a glimpse into the political and economic world of Russia in the last 100 years. And this is a country that has been ruled by autocrats or absolute leaders for hundreds of years and has very little experience, boots on the ground, with true democracy. And that's just something to keep in mind as we watch the news and we continue to learn. I know I am continuing to learn about this unfolding crisis, but I hope this has been helpful to you. If it has, again, I am so grateful for comments on Instagram, questions, as well as shares and reviews. I'm just so grateful. Thank you for being here. And I hope you go out and make the world a little wiser. 